Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And I'm Damien. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. Uh, so today we are going to be talking about Sierra. And we thought that we would bring on someone who is very passionate about Sierra. Uh, so we brought in our honorific brother, Damien, today. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm excited. Yeah. Welcome He's, to the yeah. show. Thank you. We Yes. Um, Damien's uh, not getting paid for this either by us or Sierra. And his uh, opinions are his own. <laughs> So, I'm worried those Sierra lawyers are going to get at us. <laughs> yeah, you better, you better watch out. So, uh, Damien, uh, since you are uh, our guest on our 35th show, which is super exciting, why don't you tell us what you've been recently been playing? Sounds good. So, I've been playing a game called Pop Up Dungeon. Uh, it's actually an early release now. It's supposed to be out around August 12th of 2020, since who knows when people are going to listen to this. Uh, it's being developed by Triple B Games, which is local to me in uh, the Dallas, Texas area, and uh, being put out by Humble Games. So it's it's oh, fun. it's really interesting. So it's I guess a mix of a RPG and a tabletop simulator. Uh, the best way to describe it is is it's a little wacky, which I guess is the games I like, and uh, all your characters are like mini paper cutouts that someone has made on a board that looks like a bunch of mini paper cutouts. So uh, you, you essentially play D&D &D on a little tabletop uh, and fight with these weird paper people. Uh, and, and even the when you're doing the narration or, or getting the storyline, they hold up little paper cutouts on popsicle sticks and kind of wave them as if the DM is trying oh, that's to fun. Yeah. be the character. That's that fun. Yeah, and it has all the, you know, classic RPG elements, too. You level up, you have gear, and you need to work through the storyline and even make these decisions, right? And uh, roll dice. If you want a certain character and recruit them, you might have to, you know, uh, persuade them to join and you might not make your role. So... Very fun. Uh, I think it, it's... I, I haven't played a game like it, actually, before. And I, it really, I, I guess, creates a new, unique experience for the RPG world itself. That's fun. So you recommend people picking it up if, when they can? Yeah, if they're interested in RPG games with a twist, right? Something different, I, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, and and they actually allow you to do some of your own customization. So you can make your own little weird paper avatar if you want to, which is nice. Oh, awesome. So since uh, I decided to go along with the theme that me and Damien yeah. discussed earlier, that or Damien and I discussed earlier, I'm going to go next. Uh, so the game that I've been playing recently is kind of a cop-out because it's kind of uh, a game, but also more of an administrative tool. But I've been playing Fantasy Grounds, which is a virtual tabletop. There's a, I'm working on a Starfinder game to play with my uh, friends remotely. And we are using Fantasy Grounds, which was released on Steam back in 2014. And it's published by Smythworks USA. It allows uh, a facilitation of remote playing of different tabletop role-playing games. Uh, it is, it's costly to be involved. So you either have to buy the base game, which generally uh, like retails around $49.99. Unless you have a game master or everyone chips in and buy someone buys the ultimate edition, which retails around $145, $149. But this allows you then, if you have the ultimate edition, for everyone who can just get the demo version to connect to you and get 
all of whatever additional products you purchase because you also have to buy the rules for the games that you want to play. So each rule book can run you almost MSRP of what the actual rule book is. Uh, it takes into consideration the costs of the work that it goes into to automate the games uh, in order to connect them to a fantasy ground like environment. So you're, you're not only paying for the content which you get when you buy one of the many supplements that are available i think there's 1400 different games that are available or something along that line or 1400 different modules for the the game so then there's definitely if you like even like obscure games like deadlands or shadow world shadow lands savage lands shadow worlds i'm making up my own games now well, if um, you like shadow worlds i mean <laughs> yeah sure there's you could probably buy the supplement for it there um so uh yeah so that's what i've been playing i guess since i've been working on um the game for uh the starfinder game yeah there you go well i didn't get the memo uh <laughs> i would have jumped into Uh-oh. jumped into something similar if i didn't get the memo because i've been playing blood flesh <laughs> flesh supply <laughs> i mean that sounds which, pretty similar <laughs> so blood is, I, I, i'm pretty sure fresh supply i put in a typo of course blood, yeah is it it's fresh, it's fresh supply. Supply. oh i thought it was blood fl- i think they missed the i think they missed being called blood flesh supply blood I mean, flesh supply would be a great name too yeah they're both good names i don't see what's the problem here so i've been playing blood fresh supply which is uh, a remastered version of the 1997 monolith productions pc game uh this version is from 2019 and it's by night dive studios who they do a lot of really great remasters and kind of like re-editions of, of older games. Uh, so Blood originally was built in the build engine, similar to titles like Duke Nukem 3D, Shadow Warrior, and the game I mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, Redneck Rampage. And this version, however, is in the Kex engine, K-E-X, uh, which was built by Samuel Villareal, uh, who no- was known as Kaiser back on the old Doom forums. And Kex is a kind of a engine that's been used for a whole variety of games not just build or doom engine games but it was used for the remaster of the original system shock for strife for turok dinosaur hunter and most recently the doom 64 port that's on the playstation 4 um in in blood you play as caleb he's a cultist or a former cultist who used to worship a god known as chernabog uh chernabog kills him and then he comes back from the dead and decides he's going to go on a quest to find his lost lover and he uses guns to do this um, by gunning down all of his old cult friends um overall it's you know it's just a fun game it's it's that same kind of uh action-packed game that you come to expect from uh old 90s first person shooters um i personally like the setting it's very gothic it's kind of a mixture of gothic western um where the 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 setting itself has some gothic elements to it but caleb is kind of this like he's like he wears like a cowboy hat and like a trench coat <laughs> you know he looks like a wild west guy but yeah it's, it's a pretty good game i hate you because now i remember this game i just looked up pictures of it and i remember this i don't know if fondly's the word but uh, oh my god the skull with the light coming out as a weapon oh my yes god. yeah 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 uh, um so i have you... a i have a question about caleb though yeah what about caleb it's, so he is a former cultist who's died and has come back yes so he's no longer a cultist no but well what brought him back or is he a... former cultist because he's dead <laughs> 
Well, so there's like this, there's this massive story to blood that I didn't realize existed. I was just trying to find a simple plot summary and I ended up finding like the blood Bible on Wikipedia, which was like this like massive tome of, of information. <laughs> but apparently Caleb and his wife, Ophelia used to worship Chernabog. And then he was part of a group of five cultists known as the chosen and Chernabog took all the chosen and said, you guys are doing a bad job worshiping me and killed them. And then (laughs) something brought Caleb back and he's now on a vengeful not Chernabog who killed them. So he's mad at Chernabog for killing him. And And potentially, yeah, potentially taking his wife. His wife's missing. She's mostly missing because he woke up in a grave. So (laughs) (laughs) she's like not not, next to him. (laughs) She's not necessarily missing. She just is not near him. No, yeah. Thanks to you, Zach. Now other people know that. I bet no one. I didn't know that. I didn't even know there was a story. I treated this like every other game that was a first person kill everyone. This is like this massive, ridiculous plot that I you don't get from the game. <laughs> oh, it's just like the I mean, very similar to uh, the Doom Bible. Doom has a Bible uh, that goes into very detailed descriptions about all sorts of things in the Doom universe. Which and Doom is a very also very uh, simple game to play. Not necessarily uh, there's it doesn't really spoon feed you any story when you play Doom. So so yeah. So let's get into talking about Sierra Entertainment. Sierra Entertainment is a uh, a, a very awesome company that is uh no longer with us and <laughs> we buried them <laughs> like caleb they're during no their time like yeah like they're, caleb. sure maybe they'll be resurrected like yeah. caleb <laughs> going a vengeful um, killing spree <laughs> <laughs> oh geez uh well mixed up mother goose <laughs> but uh <laughs> so uh sierra brought us a lot of games and they had a lot of developers within them their uh, portfolio as it were there was um, a lot of developers they they went through a number of series of uh, purchases and per- they they but they brought us a lot of iconic games and which is one of the reasons that we brought Damien here um, to really talk about uh, Sierra as uh, as a construct as a as a thing that he grew up idolizing and and really one of his top top favorite game developers uh since the one of the first many emails that he sent to us was you should do an episode about sierra and and zach and i were like well well we've played sierra games and we want to do it justice yeah i mean um if if i were to talk only about sierra games um and this segues nicely into memories of sierra i probably would only be able to talk about like the incredible machine i mean we used to have a copy of the incredible tune machine which was the sierra title besides that i i I didn't play a lot of sierra games growing up oh and mixed up mother goose (laughs) and every impressions game yes yeah but i mean i didn't seth played gabriel knight i didn't play any gabriel knight um i never really played any of the quest games until later i've played them more recently but so I, I wouldn't certainly been able to do it justice. Uh, obviously, it's not Chex Quest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the only game that Zachary has played. It is. It is. Um, so my memories in regards to Sierra was I, I definitely played EcoQuest. EcoQuest, the search for Cletus is <laughs> the, <laughs> the greatest game ever. Um, I did not play the sequel, which is EcoQuest 2 
some other tagline. And then I loved the Gabriel Knight series, um, though I played uh, Gabriel Knight 1 to completion and I played Gabriel Knight 3 through completion multiple times. I still haven't gotten through Gabriel Knight 2. Gabriel Knight is one of the few series that I know of that has a linear story, Gabriel Knight 1, Gabriel Knight 2, Gabriel Knight 3, and three entirely different graphical <laughs> UIs for <laughs> each one of them. Yeah. So the first one is like a 2D uh, traditional point-and-click adventure. Then the second one is a FMV-driven game. And the third one is a 3D modeled adventure. Um, and then, of course, The Incredible Machine. And then there's the the King's Quest, the Police Quest, the Space Quest games. So I actually don't have a lot of familiarity with the Quest games beyond trying to play Police Quest 1, which yeah. um, is very difficult. <laughs> and then there's all the Impressions games like uh, Caesar, Pharaoh, Cleopatra uh, that I'm very familiar with, Isometric City Builders. Um, so yeah, there's a, a lot of games that, that were created by Sierra that I've played. There were also a lot that I did not play. Um, so Damien, what about you? What are your, your memories of Sierra? Well, so I'm the gap filler, right? So if, if the title, if the title said quest in it, I owned it or played it. Um, I mean, King's Quest, Even though it was quest? Even Police Quest. Yes, I have fond memories of Police Quest because I knew not to speed on the highway and therefore not get my ticket thrown out in court. Which is crazy because it happened only after I got the ticket thrown out multiple times and figured out that you have to actually be a police. So, you know, my my memories of Sierra go, like, super way back to, I guess I started playing video games. Um I thought about this because I knew you were going to ask, and it, it, there's kind of the good path and the bad path. So, the the good path is is me going to what was called Electronics Boutique at the time, a store that doesn't exist and actually was sold electronics and games, then became EB Games, and then GameStop. And I would be an annoying child and talk to the salespeople because I didn't want to shop with my mom at the mall that led me to space quest three which was a, an amazing game and kind of filled this this space of enjoyment that involved not only science fiction which i was really into but comedy right and and that's kind of the one of the trademarks of a lot of sierra games is uh f you know these funny elements or things that are offbeat so space quest three the pilots uh the pirates of pestulon um, that was great. Uh, you know, I was nine years old and I essentially learned how to type on that game. It was, uh, using kind of their first generation of the, the Sierra creative interpreter, right? Um, one of their game they, engines. If they were, is a text parser type game where it, it instead is. of like point and clicking, you would be like type use and then the object with the object again or something like that correct so so they they went through sierra went through these different engines and uh you know a lot of the early games were, were very much so text-based uh a la zork right if you think about the pre-graphics world yeah yeah um, yeah yeah and they they continue that tradition so i learned how to type because you actually had to do things pretty fast or you died really regularly in that game uh, 
<laughs> so that was, and they made fun of you for it, which was also kind of funny, right? So you you die, and they'd make they'd say like, "Oh, you that's silly. Why'd you touch that acid?" And you'd be like, "Oh, okay, I guess because that was bad." So that was um, that was the my, that was one memory, and I couldn't place if that was first or me going to a friend's house who who will rename uh, who will remain unnamed and playing Laser Suit Larry 3 on his father's computer. Um, <laughs> aptly named <laughs> Passionate Patty in Pursuit of the Pulsating Pectorials. And <laughs> A, we should not have been playing it. A and all the Laser Suit Larrys kind of had built in this little protection by asking you questions that only adults should know, like about President Hoover, like who he was, <laughs> and hilarious. things that he did. And depending on how you answered those questions was how much uh, virtual nudity you got to see. And we answered very poorly. So I guess uh, that, that's smarter than asking you, like, just what your age is, you know? Oh, 100%. And we tried to look Th this things This was prior up. to Wikipedia. Yeah, right. Prior to Wikipedia, prior to a real <laughs> internet. So we were just like, is there an encyclopedia around? Kids, for those who don't know, an encyclopedia is a very large book with information <laughs> in it. But yes, made by Encarta. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Came on two CDs sometimes. <laughs> and before that, people came door to door to sell you them. And it was weird. But the, so the, also made by Encarta. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of my, my first memories. And it kind of grew into just trying the other games. Uh, Quest for Glory was a big one. I mean, Space Quest and Quest for Glory were my two major go-tos. Quest for Glory, especially because they had the most unique system where you could play one adventure, save your character, and then load them into the next game, and you would get stat boosts, and that was the only way to become a paladin eventually, was you had to play with a previous character and uh, have those skills. So you, you basically could have a completely unique experience to someone playing a Quest for Glory game uh, for the first time yeah that's cool it's it's like um i always like those like um save features that allowed you to bring your previous character into like a, a future game i i always thought and if they gave you things i always thought that was great um i was recently playing um the dark sun series by ssi mm -hmm. and they have the same option to bring in your uh so i brought more bad the terrible from his first incarnation to his second incarnation um though and all of his friends so frank <laughs> cyrus and <laughs> whatever the other guy's name was so what now you were talking about how this was um pre reliable internet pre wikipedia um do you remember uh, what you were originally playing uh, the Sierra games on? Like what type of uh, computer would be? Oh, God. So <laughs> I played on an old IBM compatible. It was a 386-33. So it was a SX model. Um, but we we did later upgrade to a 486-DX266 with the turbo button. Um, fun fact, the turbo button didn't actually make things go turbo. They made them go slower. Yeah, it's kind of like a misnomer, isn't it? Like, you'd expect yeah. it speeds up your computer like, when it just slows like everything bullet down. time? Well, right. <laughs> like, max pain, like, <laughs> execute slowly. Well, well, essentially, right, because this is why DOSBox exists, because all those old games were CPU clocked. They didn't have their own engine 
to run the clocks. So you played an old game on a fast computer and suddenly things are zipping around and you basically can't react and you're dead. So you'd hit the turbo button and suddenly it worked normally because, you know, we doubled the speed from 33 to 66. Uh, but this was, you know, before internet, uh, before modem. We didn't even have, we didn't have a modem then. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm digging a little deep tech wise, but when you had to manage your own computer memory to play games with expanded and extended memory, uh, this was way back. CPUs couldn't handle more than one meg of RAM. One meg, as I uh, was talking to you guys about my 32 gigs of RAM going into my computer now. So it couldn't handle it, right? It's uh, So you had to use a program to move your memory around to play games sometimes. As a child, it was super frustrating, and I broke the computer so much. I So that may be why we were never able to beat Dragon Sphere as a child. Since Maybe. we never did anything with our RAM to, to move it around, and we always ran out of extended RAM. Oh yeah, the game would always crash. <laughs> the game, so there was a period of time where Dragon Sphere, and I believe Phantom of the Opera, uh, <laughs> Return of the Phantom of the Opera, both of those games uh, by the wonderful defunct studio of Micro... Oh, no, they're not defunct, they're back. <laughs> Micropros. <laughs> Micropros is back, and they're better than ever. Yes, Just like not defunct. Um <laughs> just like Colab. that would uh, they would crash the game they, they would get to a point and they would crash so it was very um like a win in nostalgia when i was a high schooler and i went back and beat dragon sphere on a uh, a newer computer with uh i think dosbox emulation or something like that yeah so th so that was my that was my old computer ega vga graphics that means nothing to young people oh, uh a, beautiful a though. love those a a Disney sound source because we were fancy. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. I actually got that to play Arachnophobia and it had voices and it was exciting. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I So I remember always being presented with options of choosing your sound card. And I always knew that we just had the default version of the sound card. <laughs> And but I never knew what that was, so I always was like, I think it's Sound Blaster, yeah, or something. I think like, so. I always would just pick whichever one made sound. The only reason I remember what sound card we had, which I think was just a standard like Sound Blaster, was because in Warcraft the voice would go, "Your sound card works perfectly," <laughs> when you chose the right one. <laughs> so so you guys didn't even get the ad lib cards or even the the weird janky off brands. Uh, no, we just had the, the we had the Hewlett Packard four eighty six Packard Bell Packard Bell box. You, oh, the Packard Bell. Sorry, not the Hewlett Packard. Two 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 Packards. Two very different people. <laughs> the Packard Bell with the person's face on it. Yeah. See, unlike un unlike me, you guys probably didn't open up the computer and start messing with things. I did open up a computer that was owned by my parents, and I was too young to appreciate what it was and i destroyed it <laughs> and physically destroyed it like ripped caps off the boards <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway with um sierra I, I understand that you had a um a vested interest in their survival as a company yes i was you know considered at that time a major stockholder when i was you know like 12 so <laughs> Well, you know, when I was young, and, and maybe you guys had this experience too, we did the stock market game, right? Where they teach you about the stock market and you check stocks and try to make some money 
uh, I almost said virtual money, but you couldn't even call it virtual because it was just on a piece of paper <laughs> written down. And yeah, I, it was I, imaginary money. <laughs> yeah. I, I was horrible at the stock market game, but it gave me enough uh, I, understanding to go look that information up. And when Sierra was public, I saw that it kind of had a good trend. It would go up for three quarters and then go down for one quarter, but it would always be better than it had started. And I said, hey, I like this company. Like, why wouldn't I want to invest in it? So as the cool kids did back then, I asked my parents for stock during uh, from Santa for, for Christmas. Probably not Santa. I was old enough to know Santa wasn't real. <laughs> Santa was your stockbroker. Yes, the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> this was before all those day trading apps. But I, I asked for Sierra stock, and my parents acquiesced. Uh, surprisingly, because I thought it was like a crazy. I didn't know how to buy stocks, right? I didn't know if they had to like talk to a lawyer or I don't know, go to the New York Stock Exchange. So they they got me stock, and I was really excited and kind of went through the cycle of watching it and seeing it double and, you know, or sorry, it would split, right? So I'd get more stock and the stock would go up and I'd get super excited and it was fun. And then history happened, which we'll talk about. Right. So to get into history, what that's a good segue. You weren't from the, the best there. Zach, do you want to um, start with the, the Sierra history? And uh, Damien, feel free to, to jump in. So uh, Sierra started in 1980. It was... Uh, started by Roberta and Ken Williams with their first release called Mystery House. And the company at the time was called Online Systems. And by 1982, they had moved to using the name Sierra Online in honor of their start near the Sierra Nevada Hills. And this included incorporating the the Half Dome logo, which is, uh, if you ever look at a picture of the Sierra logo, it's like a mountain in, in, the, in a Half Dome. In July of 1983, King's Quest, Quest for the Crown, was released for the IBM PC Junior. It was built on a custom engine called the Adventure Game Interpreter, AGI. And Damien referred to this earlier, and it would become kind of the model for what uh, was for a large number of adventure games that Sierra Online would develop. Yeah, and, and, and really it helped define the company, right? And it's interesting too, uh, the IBM PC Junior, huge failure. King's Quest on, King's Quest 1 on the IBM PC Junior, failure because of that but when it hit tandy right they they actually ported it to the to the tandy it was it, it blew up and that really kind of set the the groundwork for going forward uh so so within sierra right they they do they're successful and in 1985 they moved to their redwood location which is kind of classic and and well known and yeah, uh, Microsoft, I think, was up there as well, wasn't or in that area. Correct. Like and a lot of the, like that was like the Silicon Valley of the eighties. <laughs> well, and that's that's they outgrew the where they were, right? They couldn't find talent, and they looked at companies that were up in the Redwood area and said, "Hey, let's let's move there because we could actually get programmers." Right? Where they were, they the 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 talent pool was pretty thin, uh, and, and at that time. That's where they took that Half Dome logo uh, and made it to what people generally know as the Sierra logo today. Uh, by 1980, I mean, they're producing games. They're going crazy. And by 1988, with King's Quest, once again, King's Quest uh, for the Perils of Rosella, they actually create the newest 
game interpreter or game engine, the uh, Sierra Creative Interpreter, the SCI, uh, which is it's an interesting mix. So the the first iteration kept with text based inputs, and what happened was is that from there they would actually move in, starting with what they they call that one the SCI zero with SCI one was now mouse inputs, which they did right. as well to. The SCI was important because it could handle faster machines. And it, another interesting fact is, is during this transition in 1988, you can find games that are both released using the AGI and the SCI engines to accommodate slower machines and faster machines. Now, as expected, no one wanted the AGI versions. Everyone was upgrading computers, so they quickly stopped kind of backporting, I guess you'd call it. And uh, just stuck with the SCI in, uh, engine. And that is really what you get now where you have either hand icons or you click on buttons that say look or get or use. Uh, and from right. there, uh, just a year later in 1989, they hit, uh, they go public on the stock market, which turns into my investing story. And, and that, that SCI interface goes across the industry of games where that kind of like microprose games have that type of interface. Um, LucasArts games yeah. has that type of interface. Like that mouse verb interface becomes kind of like the almost the industry standard for adventure games. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's crazy to think that, especially with today's games or what we consider point and click adventures, that there was a time where no one was like a mouse wasn't a thing. Mouse wasn't part of the normal user experience. Yeah. I mean, I I've played um, King's quest quest for the crown on an Apple two and Apple twos don't have mice. So, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's so you a your very keyboard. different, very different experience. Um, so in, uh, after they went public in 1990, they acquired Dynamics. Uh, and then they acquired Bright Star Technologies in 92 and uh, Cocktail Vision in 93. Acquiring up uh, a storm. And then, so what happened when with all these acquisitions is they took the lip-syncing tech from Bright Star and actually incorporated that into the SCI-1 engine and then used that in the multimedia version of King's Quest VI, which was also available on three and a half uh, floppy disks. And this was a popular release type of situation that, game companies would do is they would release the game on CD-ROM, which was the multimedia version, and they would also release the game on the three and a half, because not everybody had CD-ROM capable computers, so they may need the three and a half to be able to read it and play the game. Yeah. Though, when they used the multimedia versions, they would generally add things like lip syncing or voices, and you would get games that had completely different, like entire, almost a different feel from the three and a half because they were voice like there's voices throughout the entire game um return of the phantom which is a microprose game that zachary and i talk about constantly we're in love with it <laughs> it's one of our top top tier games you could get as um either the version that has no voices and you can get the version that does have voices and it's an entirely different type of game playing through when it's very silent when there's kind of like iconic voice actors on the cd-rom version well i mean the best a great example of that is um i wanted to revisit a game from my childhood which was mixed up mother goose a sierra game and 
finding copies of it online, I was having a hard time finding the version that we had because I was finding the floppy disk version that people have put on like abandonware and stuff like that on the website. Um, I ended up going through like a stack of CDs that I think I grabbed from our mother's house, which had the original um, CD version of Mixed Up Mother Goose. It was even though it was scratched to be on recognition, I was able to recover the data off of it. And, and I was like, finally, I could play it. And it's a terrible game. But, you know, it was great for the time. <laughs> And they also have a sequel to Mix Up Mother Goose. They have Mix Up Fairy Tales. Yeah, yeah. So in um, 1996, uh, Sierra Online is sold to CUC International, which eventually becomes Sendent Corporation in 97 after a merge with HFS Incorporated. And uh, Damien, you had a personal experience with Sendent? I I did. That's that's a good call out. So... When I was a teenager, I actually worked at Sendent Corporation, not actually realizing the connection, uh, working in their membership division, not I didn't get like involved in their game uh, division. Uh, but it's uh, I did actually I mean, I guess I have continued connection with Sierra through that with Sierra. And and actually that that acquisition, the CUC International in, uh, acquisition of Sierra Online was interesting because the CEO of CUC was on the board for Sierra Online, and it essentially, after one of the board meetings, just went up to Ken Williams and and laid down the offer, and from there, they negotiated, and that is how Sierra Online got acquired, which is crazy, because, I mean, in the mid-90s, Sierra's hot. Sierra's producing tons of games and and has a, a large amount of revenue. And, you know, I think it might have been this idea of uh, becoming more global, being part of a, a larger organization and having access to that type of financial, right? Then we get into the 90s where we're heading towards was the tech bubble. <laughs> yeah. And um, 98, uh, Sierra is uh, broken up into five brands and divisions. Um, where they break it up into Sierra Attractions, Sierra Home, Sierra Sports, uh, Sierra Studios, and Sierra FX. Uh, Sierra Attraction was uh, more for casual games such as uh, poker games, and Sierra Home was for home and lifestyling software such as cooking software or home design softwares. Uh, those really like like rand i remember having a cooking software program that just had like recipes stored and like it was like a fake like a virtual rolodex of recipes um sierra sports which was uh the dynamic sports titles uh and various other um, games that were more sporting theme as evident by the name uh sierra studios which was uh Kind of like the Sierra Northwest Bellevue, uh, Pyrotechnics, and the Impression software. So all the best guys uh, all nested up under uh, Sierra Studios. And then uh, Sierra FX, which was uh, for... So also the best guys, because all the adventure games and online multiplayer games nested up there. Um, Which was uh, based at the old Oakhurst location, which was... um, Pre- that they were at before going to Redmond. Yeah, you can kind of you can you can kind of think of Sierra Studios as the gate the classic gaming that wasn't adventure, right? There, you know, so almost Sierra Studios was the new school games, 
from right. from their from their bread and butter. While Sierra FX was really all the classic titles and all the developers there, uh, kind of pumping forward and working through things such as you know sequels and even remakes, which Sierra mm, got known right. for. And and the other three were just kind of general. Mo- mom's mom's, <laughs> no, mom's gardening software by Sierra. Yeah, the, the, the shovelware. <laughs> um, so, so the two thousands came, and the Sierras started having issues where they were uh, bought and sold, and eventually they were uh, they had to close certain divisions down, um, and layoffs happened, and eventually Activision acquired them. And in 2008, Activision did what it does with a lot of properties, <laughs> and they dissolved it. <laughs> it, did, it did the Activision way. The Activision way, where they just closed the doors. Yeah, I guess. Um, I, and that's it. I guess you can kind of see yeah. that transition, right? I mean, just 10 years earlier, they're broken up into visions, and a lot of big companies do that to buy and you know well to essentially sell those divisions off you know segment yeah, right. the systems and uh w- once we hit the 2000s see who's unprofitable oh yeah, yeah. and and 2000s as you mentioned the the tech bubble right uh, th- there's a lot of downturn and at that time you can kind of watch as various entities uh, the divisions or even smaller companies within the divisions got sold off and uh, through multiple, I mean, it's even, it's not even worth talking about how many different companies ended up owning Sierra uh, through, uh, C, uh, through, through Sendent until eventually it went to nothing. And I owned stock in a French car rental company. <laughs> Maybe they have a Sierra division. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they, they had the leisure suit they Larry car. Him. <laughs> they they have one property that they bought from Sierra because all these uh, these properties are like fair game for other if whatever Activision didn't hold on to has been traded off so Activision may have a but like Jane Jensen walked away with Gabriel Knight she's yep. able to make her own Gabriel Knight games yep. and publish them under her own studios not successful because she's closed her studios but she was able to do a new remastered on gabriel knight and that's because some sierra activision kept what it wanted and if it was an an intellectual property that they didn't really care for they just sold it or gave it back to whoever originally had it which is i think i think interesting because it's the decisions that these executives at activision are making in the moment right Mm. so it's 2008 and they are like okay get rid of this guy this guy this guy and they just go through the list and they just say we don't want any of these ips and in those ips there could be like a nugget that really is having it's going to have a resurgence of nostalgia in 10 years 20 years and they could run off with it and we've seen that with other games and other properties uh, come back with like a resurgence because uh, they were um, given back to their respective owners or the IP was available to get purchased again. It even, even to like um, with the issues with XCOM going to eventually 2K, like it's this, a lot of different, you can, you can see the, how important, leadership at these companies that could be huge can make a decision in the moment that can impact generations no of course and 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 you see you know for people who are working there where sierra historically just kept growing and growing 
after the acquisition, they definitely started seeing changes, right? And with layoffs and, and as you call out near the end, as they're, they're kind of selling off property to other publishers, other developers, it, it's, it's really just, where can we get the money? I mean, you, you even have things going to, I mean, they sold stuff to Atari, right? I mean, yeah, right. Who, when people were like, wait, Atari's still around? I mean, it's, you know, they're, to Atari, Electronic Arts, Bethesda, THQ. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're selling to everyone. And this is where you essentially see, you know, the whole company just gone. Yeah. And, and then those companies may be good stewards of those brands, or they may be, poor stewards of those brands <laughs> but they can they can do something with that 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 brand which sierra had plenty of brands so and and in this when it comes to video games brands are almost synonymous with video the games themselves yeah right um so to because sierra is such a vast company and had so many divisions and so many brands and so many games i think what we should do for this episode is talk about let's talk about the quest games since there's a pile of those <laughs> and i know that specifically uh damien is a big fan of the quest games and i've played some of the quest games and zach's played some of the quest games so we can talk about that and the quest games in this would be king's quest police quest space quest and hero's quest which is now quest for glory yeah. Yeah. So originally, originally with that, it was uh, when they were producing Heroes Quest or Quest for Glory as Heroes Quest. Well, someone else registered that name, and copyright be copyrighted. So they had to come up with something else, and luckily they like the word quest, so they just put it in front. <laughs> Perfect. So out of the the four different quest games, which which quest game was your favorite? The series of quests. No one's was Police Quest. Well, maybe someone's was Police <laughs> Quest. Um, a police man. <laughs> it was just too restrictive. Uh, you you have to read you have to read the manual to know what not to do as a police officer. I'm a ten year old. I don't care. Um, so kind of like I mentioned before, I think I was I was between. So if I wanted kind of pushing myself and and having something challenging it would be quest for glory but if i wanted a good time and laugh about a, a space janitor it would be space quest zach do you have any favorite quest series um i mean i i, I love the original king's quest i think it's a great game um and i've played some of i think it was actually space quest 2 and i like that a lot as well it's kind of the same i i think it's kind of the same boat where if it's i if i want fantasy i go king's quest if i want you know sci-fi funnies i go space quest I never played any of the Police Quest games, but I do think it's interesting they did eventually evolve into the SWAT games, which are, like, an entirely different boat of games. <laughs> like, they're tactical shooters. I, I don't know. I just think that's kind of, like, a weird transition to, to see. So what I really love about the Police Quest games is that they have a police officer that they brought on, and he designed the game and presented to them and they said no <laughs> they said this is way too great like this is this is like the most like stringent type of game let's get a game like designer to work with you and then they made police quest and if you play police quest you can understand that that they definitely still needed some work because the game is very 
as Damien says, you need you can't play the game without the guidebook. There's a point in time where you have to bring a prisoner in and you have to list all of the crimes that they committed for you to be able to put them into prison through a series of numbers. And the only way that you would know what the correct numbers are is if you had the guidebook open and you can look up the numbers to whatever the infraction is. So it could be like a 10040 is you know driving under the influence and but if you didn't have the guidebook you don't know what the numbers are and you can't put them into prison but they were real numbers like the, right the, the, oh yeah these were a policeman designed it yes these were these were police codes for crimes and just everything about the i mean i get it and i and there were enjoyable parts but it's you know i as a child i wanted to fly off the handle and you know, I wanted right. to be the bad cop, and they're like, well, can't be the bad cop, and I got upset. So, the thing I hated about King's Quest was, or King's Quest, uh, Police Quest, was the driving part. The driving part in Police Quest 1 is hell on earth, and you essentially are this little teeny square, and you go on the mini-map, and you have to go somewhere to trigger the next event, and you have to you have you have a gas you have a brake you have a left turn signal a straight and like go forward and a right turn signal but you don't control the car <laughs> the car goes forward all the time and you have to signal when you want the car to turn if you single too late the car goes through the intersection yeah if you signal too early it's possible that the signal will turn off and you will drive through the intersection and also it doesn't tell you where you need to go and there's four quadrants of the mini map so you might have to go they tells you the streets so it says this street versus in the intersection of this street it doesn't tell you where those streets are and also if you don't get there in a timely fashion you can lose the game <laughs> so but you can't speed unless you unless there's a need yes and you can't speed because you have to turn unless you turn your sirens on so the trick that i learned playing police quest is turn your sirens on immediately as soon as you get in the car just turn them on and then drive 65 70 miles everywhere and when you so as long as your lights are on when you have a random event occur where maybe somebody so like in a in the policeman idea of police quest if you're playing your drive around normal speed and then a speeder drives past you quickly then you turn your lights on and you have to chase them in Seth's version, I get in my car, I turn on my lights. As soon as I run into that speeder, I pull them over. <laughs> <laughs> so now, but did, and that's how you did you play the remake or the original? I played the SCI, SCI one, okay, which I think a lot of people did because just imagine if you had to play the text based version. Yes, t- t- text based version, and uh, it, the driving is still like bad and no mouse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like right. I don't. I don't know. I would just um, imagine that so you'd I'm, actually have to type out the Miranda rights when you arrested someone. <laughs> just because that's probably that's probably what the original from like, memory. The alpha was like, "Oh, you you didn't say the Miranda rights correctly." They get out the the murder's okay. Yeah. Um, one of the things in Police Quest One is you always have to walk around your vehicle if before you get into the vehicle, and if you don't, your car will break down. <laughs> 
at some point in time. And and <laughs> so and, every time and if you pull someone over and you don't go around the correct side of the car, you get hit by a car. That's <laughs> true. If you don't stop at the intersection, you get hit by a car. I do like how almost all the quest games have something like that, where if you you make it, like even King's Quest One. At the beginning of Kiss Quest 1, you have to walk across a bridge. If you go a little too far on that bridge, you fall off the bridge and die. <laughs> and that's the end of the game. <laughs> see, and that's, I think that's where, see, like, Space Quest took that to 11 by reveling yeah. in people dying. Because they knew people died. But I think right. a nice part about Sierra was they were okay with your character dying. Of course, because we had save states at this point, right? Or, or save right, games, right. I shouldn't say save states. But yes, every game loved to allow you to die. Yeah, I I died in Police Quest for, for not being able to sit down. So in the begin- the first mission in Police Quest is that you have to go into the locker room and you have to change out of your human, your civilian human clothes. Human change clothes. out of your humans. <laughs> change, out of, change out of your civilian clothes and then shower and get into your police outfit. And then you go to the briefing room where you have to sit down before the briefing starts. So my first time playing Police Quest ever, the game bugged out. And I couldn't sit down. And the instructor came in. And I'm trying to sit down. And he was yelling at me in giant paragraphs to sit down. Until uh, I died from not sitting down. And the game was over. Because I took so long to sit down. I I will say, I I definitely... I definitely give a lot of credit to people back in the day who were playing these uh, using, like, for example, uh, back when they, the, they were using the text parser version of the game that were coming out on five and a quarter inch floppy disks, because with King's Quest, it's on three floppy disks. And when you go to, say, the fourth or fifth screen of the game, you're already on disk three. If you die... You have to eject disc three, put back in disc one, wait for disc one to load, and start the game over again. <laughs> like it's not forgiving. <laughs> so, no. uh, so I, I, I give full props to people back then. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all lucky that we live in a time with where games, where it's you know, even replaying these games. Yeah. I mean, Seth replaying the- this game through through uh, Gog offers you ability to save quicker than than ways back then did well and then you had to name your saved games sometimes yeah so that was yeah that yeah. was a big thing of like which save oh no i overwrote the save game i have to go back hours because i didn't save yeah exactly um so i i always have my i always call my games either a new game or good game <laughs> And sometimes they're good game, good game too, good, 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 good game. And then sometimes I'll just do new game, new, new game, new, 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 new game. And then I'll just go to the character limit of new, 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 new. You save your games like how I saved my essays in college. New essay, good essay, bad essay. So now I have a question in regards to Quest for Glory and King's Quest. Yep. So I understand the difference between King's Quest, Space Quest, you have sci-fi, you have fantasy. Very similar type of uh, different distinctions, right? Similar game, different world, as it were. Police Quest, it's real life. So you have, like, uh, fantasy, sci-fi, real life. So what's what's Quest for Glory's shtick? Well, so that's... And what's different from King's Quest? So that's where you... There's actually a gap. So 
Quest for Glory was role-playing fantasy, while King's Quest was uh, essentially supposed to be like fairy tale adventure. Oh, so, so there, okay. so the, yes, it is both medieval, but if you look at the King's Quest series historically, it's kind of like fairy tales, right? And and yeah, there's right. a lot of those elements. While Quest for Glory would be more of the, you know, I guess like Tolkien. Yeah, like a little bit of that, a little bit of uh, like actual old German fairy tale. Like, I guess Quest King's Quest was American style fairy tales, while Quest for Glory had old Germanic style fairy tales fantasy, right? Because, heck, one of the games had Baba Yaga in it, right? I mean, actually, the first one had Baba Yaga in it in Baba Yaga's hut and... You're, as a kid, I'm like, I don't know what that means, but it, you know, but with chi- with the chicken legs and everything. And as when I'm older, I'm like, oh man, that's a deep cut. Like, I didn't quite get that. Um, and I think they, you know, with their developers and and these series, it really came from uh the style and the love of those developers, right? Everyone, all the classic developers who created Leisure Suit Larry. Uh, the quest for uh, quest for glory, police quest, space quest. They all worked on King's Quest, right? It's almost like King's Quest was the proving ground for a lot of these people, and then they, I guess, ev- uh, upgraded to having their own game ideas, uh, and and kind of going from there. I mean, even when you look at Roberta Williams, she is the driving force behind Phantasmagoria. Which is yeah, not her traditional bread and butter of the type of game she was making at the time. But she said, I want to do something different and I guess a little darker. And Phantasmagoria was born. Now, and what can, can you, um, I'm not, so I'm not super familiar with Phasma, Phasmagoria. Phantasmagoria. Could you, could you, <laughs> Phasmagoria, can you, uh, could you tell me like a synopsis of the game? Yeah, so it 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 was their big movement into the horror genre, um, as I as I mentioned, right? Uh, spearheaded by Roberta Williams, and it it tells the story of Adrian Delaney, who is a writer who moved into a mansion, and there's all these kind of supernatural forces coming at her, uh, and it, it 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 was kind of it came about around the time of interactive movie games, right? The the FMVs. Right. So there's a lot of live actor footage. Uh, there's cinematic scenes, right? And there's there's kind of this three dimensionality to it. But it it is a, it's a classic horror game that uh, had, I believe, a sequel uh, that is right up Zach's alley as Phantasmagoria: A Puzzle of Flesh. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was, it, you know, it it definitely was a lot darker compared to their traditional like. Ha ha he he! Here's some jokes and and some cute stuff going on, and I and that was released in '95. And it's probably a similar time that Gabriel Knight Two came out because it was also an FMV heavy game. And, and Gabriel Knight is also a, a fairly dark game in terms of tone. Um, yes, yeah. it's a but it's, it's Gabriel Knight is not necessarily a horror. No, game. no, no, no. I, I just know that it's it's definitely not as a. Uh, as like happy-go-lucky as their other <laughs> as like the quest games not not like freddie farkas frontier pharmacist <laughs> yeah no. um so i and i've played gabriel what's the thing fun thing about that i love about gabriel knight is that 
it's a series that feels like there's more to it than the actual games and that's reinforced by different there's like comics that are in the game that give you a history or background of what happened between the games you play through and you're in the first game you're in new orleans and you're a bookseller and you go and solve this uh this case that's just um that are murders so it is a little dark there and then you you kind of go through and delve a little bit in the supernatural in that first game and then it just goes into a bit more supernatural and then in the third game you're like really into the supernatural so the first game you're like trying to solve this um these murders in uh, new orleans and uh so and because it's at new orleans they're like voodoo murders and they're very like atypical type of um kind of a atypical type of murder that you would see in new orleans based in fantasy uh, <laughs> but uh there but there's also like a little uh supernatural twist onto it and then the second game involves so I've only played the first probably about 15 minutes of the first second game. I just know it involves a werewolf and and a castle in Germany. And at some point in time, Gabriel Knight becomes an heir to the Schrottinger fortune or something. Or he's part of this family and they're... These, this family is, they're dedicated like monster hunters and he gets an amulet and a dagger. And I don't think he gets any money because he always complains about being poor. But so then he does this werewolf quest. And then the third game is a, a game that revolves around the quest for the Holy Grail and <laughs> involves like masonry conspiracy. It's very much like National Treasure except it's starring Tim Curry instead of Nicolas Cage, because Tim Curry is the voice of Gabriel Knight in Gabriel Knight 1 and Gabriel Knight 2. And 3. Um, or, and, no, he's not the voice in 2. <laughs> 1 and 3. <laughs> I don't think he's the voice in 2, um, because it's not Tim Curry as uh, the FMV actor. So he's the voice in 1 and 3. Tim Curry. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, I mean, who doesn't want to play a game that's the main character is voiced by tim curry and he is very tim curious i recommend playing gabriel knight 3 after watching clue or before watching clue you know so when you talk about gabriel knight and you talk about how there's like a bigger story if we think about the historic sierra games i think there's definitely a i mean the story there's a storyline obviously but it's it's pretty base level right quest for glory you're like i'm gonna become a hero and save this town there's literally nothing about your character you you could be literally anyone king's quest you you are specific people but still i wouldn't say that there's like gonna be the lore book of king's quest right and, and yeah, you're gonna yeah. get more out of than just the games do you think you know, we're talking mid-90s, early to mid-90s. Do you think there was a shift overall with how you tell stories in games that really drove something like a Gabriel Knight? I think so. I think also the Gabriel Knight was driven by Jane Jensen, and her type of storytelling lends into the Gabriel Knight series. And her, her games tend to be a lot more... I guess not necessarily ethereal, but they tend to be more story driven and they tend to put you into something where there's definitely a history to the past. There's definitely like a future and you're just kind of playing a segment of this character's life. She had her own publishing company that came and went, 
um, called the Pinkerton Studios, and they created the Gabriel Knight's 25th edition when it was a special remaster of the first game. So if you want to play Gabriel Knight, I recommend picking up that remaster version of the first game. And then they created a game called Mobius, where it's like Mobius Rising, not exactly sure. It is a game where you play as a art appraiser. Um, I have tried desperately to play this game multiple times, and I cannot get past the first 15 to 20 minutes, maybe because of my patience, but... I really want to play this game and love it, and I may actually talk about it in my our segment, uh, Is It Really That Bad? Because it is very critically rated on uh, Steam and Metacritic. I, I mean, also to kind of follow up on Damien's point, I think the that, that point in the 90s is when a lot of games were shifting over to more of, like, story-driven in, in terms of, you know, people... I think when you went into an adventure game, um, people wanted just more to it. I mean, the 93 was when we saw Mist. It was when we saw The Seventh Guest. It was when we saw The Journeyman Project. So I think these, as these games were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and starting to feel almost like stories within themselves, I wouldn't be surprised if down along that line, Sierra was saying, hey, we, we have to take a similar you know route with our stories, with our games too, and, and start making them bigger in terms of their story. Um, as opposed to these like simple plots. Hey, you know it's a fun story. Yeah. I was just looking up uh, some of our other games that we have here, and Zach, you said that you were recently playing Blood. Yes, Blood was developed by Monolith Productions. Yes, which has games that were published by Sierra. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice little uh, tie-in. Like, yeah, that that's a fun little tie-in. Well, that's th- that's what's interesting. There's all these weird games that actually got published by sierra like spyro 2 half-life uh, a few die harm game yeah half-life die hard games a lord of the rings game a few of them uh just i i would never have thought but you know i guess that's when you have enough money and you're doing it's, well yeah. then you just become a publisher you're just like this is great send it out <laughs> <laughs> i think they, they had a diablo 2 under their belt as a publisher yeah like, yeah that's crazy. They own the Don't Know You Don't Know Jack series for a while. Very good game. I think there I think there is definitely like Sierra has definitely left its mark on video game history for sure. Oh, I agree. I mean they formed and essentially set the standard for what adventure games would be as well as almost being uh, ahead of the curve when it came to game engines and the interfaces. Yeah. Right. right? Uh so without Sierra, I think we'd probably have a very different landscape. Not that companies like LucasArts or, or others wouldn't have still been contributors, but I think there's a there's a, a vibe that Sierra games kind of give off when you look at their core game sets and their, their franchises that uh, no one else has really bottled up or maybe should, such as the Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah. Even though I think they're, the, Al Lowe is trying to make a new one. He was trying to kickstart something. I don't know. That will bring us to our uh, next segment, which is our new segment for the Is It Really That Bad? It's fun. So uh, as a guest, Damien, do you want to do your um, Is It Really That Bad? And uh, tell us about a game that you've played that is not really well received, but that you might enjoy or you might hate. So, So I had a little trouble coming up with this. Uh, well, thinking of one because... I don't get a chance to play a lot of games lately, so I actually went to one that I was uh, involved in a little bit as well. 
So I went for Duke Nukem Forever. Uh, it's a classic franchise of Duke Nukem, but uh, the last the last game in the series to which took 15, 16 years to develop. Uh, I have a little, I have a little, an average time to develop any game. Uh, I have a little connection because when I moved to Texas, I I uh, attended the launch party, which was everything you expected. And uh, it, it is, I think it's a contentious game. And it's, it's interesting. As I mentioned, it had a, a 15, 16 year uh, development cycle where it went from using the Quake 2 engine to the Unreal engine to uh, having trouble with its publishers and uh, trouble within 3D Realms, where basically the entire team got let go except for uh, some small, uh, for, except for a small retinue uh, where it was being funded uh, directly uh, by, uh, you know, a couple people until eventually through uh, a, a relationship got picked up by Gearbox to essentially take it to the finish line. And, you know, my uh, my viewpoint is, is that is it uh, is it a bad 2011 game? Kind of. It, it, it looks like Second Life. If you if you're looking at it and playing it, it's kind of, uh, I guess, not animated, really. And every every joke from it was from nine, like 1999 to 2001 from for how it lands. Uh, but it is kind of fun, I guess. As I say, it high pitched. It's 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 enjo- it has enjoyable moments, but it's a game that came out 10 years too late for what it tried to accomplish. I think I, I, I was vested in it. I pre-ordered it, so I, I had to play it. It was out of pure pure anger and spite for myself. I said I was going to play this until it just stopped making sense. And, uh, you know, but it, it's, it's not horrible, right? And I think a lot of people dig into it because after 15 years and multiple times it's been hyped and, and it was shown and people kind of expecting it, it definitely did not live live up to what people had expectations for. But, I mean, if you really look at it and say, hey, this game took, you know, 14 years of development and then Gearbox took it over and said, well, we're going to take it to the finish line. It's not that bad. Right. But probably right. shouldn't have been $60. Um, and I, I've, been, I've been told that the humor <laughs> in Duke Nukem Forever is not really the best for 2020 nor was it the best for 2011 <laughs> it, it no no it's not right it, like duke nukem was known for being crude and you there were strippers and you'd throw money at the strippers and you know he was a classic action hero right like we're talking 80s schwarzenegger sylvester stallone but taken up like times 10 and people are like, yeah, I'm totally into that. And I think the problem was, is instead of making it kind of farcical, right. And, and leaning into like this, this doesn't work anymore. Or maybe they didn't even have the chance to do that because they kept redeveloping it. Um, it. It stuck to that, that classic Duke Nukem. This is, yeah. And then in 2011, <laughs> people were like, Ugh, I don't know. Like, yeah. Like if someone tried to put it out today, 
there would be protest. Like I shouldn't say there would be protests. There, that people would just like boycott it straight away because of just how horrible and the jokes. Like in the very beginning, there's a mom with a child and she has a shirt that says "Got Milf" on it, and it's it's there. And you're just like, there's no point to it, right? There's there's no Chekhov's gun, right? Like. Nothing comes off of it. And even if you if something came out of it, you would be like, I don't know if this is right. This and, doesn't feel and right. And for any of uh, of our listeners who's wondering what Damien means by Chekhov's gun, it is the essentially the the literary or the play reference where if there is a, a gun that is put on the stage, it better be shot by the end of the show. It's something it it's something if something is presented to you in an entertainment medium it should be there for a reason as it were um there's no point in telling a story yeah. where there's something presented to somebody that they didn't need to hear that is i guess and, and to and to be fair i'm not saying that there should have been action on that on that got milf shirt but once again it just could have been right. a mom right and there's other elements there that just it does they don't do anything or it just doesn't flow. like there's a way to do i think like the modern doom games doom in uh 2016 and doom eternal have a good way of keeping some of the the the, the things that we loved about the doom games in the 90s uh, but also modernizing them without making them feel bad and i think that's what duke nukem was missing like you know when you doom eternal for example there's references and stuff to things from the 90s and such but you know it's it's not there without reason it's there usually yeah and the and wolfenstein too i would say is very uh wolfenstein is is very good with um presenting uh bj blatzowitz as a modern character because he if anything actually those three guys BJ Blatzowitz, uh, Doom Guy, and um, Duke from Duke Nukem, uh, they are kind of like three similar action stars of the same era growing up, right? Because they, they all were around, released originally around the same time for their original games, and then they kind of all got other iterations. I feel like the poor, poor Duke probably didn't get as many iterations as Doom Guy and as as uh Blasowitz did but and they all represent you know your macho action hero that can do anything and i think that the wolfenstein franchise and the doom franchise were probably stewarded a little bit better than the duke nukem franchise well, well i think the big difference is right is is when you look at those franchises when they relaunch them and and they i don't even want to say reimagined right they they just kind of modernized it they those elements that were important were like a love letter right like it's a love letter to classic elements while while duke nukem forever was just like what do you mean we never left like everything's the same and i'm not gonna do anything better you know, and that's where I think it fell flat, where you play Doom Internal and you're like, oh, that's so cool because that's a thing. And, you know, I know about that and it, it it fits, but it also has a deeper meaning in the same with uh, the Wolfensteins. But when you when you look at the Duke Nukem's, it's uh, there's just uh, there's not a lot there. Um, so, uh, Zach, do you want to 
take it away? Yeah. So my is it really that bad is a a game that came out. It actually was it came out in two parts. The first part came out in 2010. Episode two, the second part came out in 2012. That game is Sonic the Hedgehog four. And very similar to Duke Nukem Forever, this is a game that was sold to us as a sequel, direct sequel, to 1994 Sonic the Hedgehog 3. <laughs> um, so Sonic 4 is the quote-unquote return to form that Sega had had promised the Sonic fans for years. You know, Sonic fans were saying, hey, we want to see classic Sonic gameplay come back. And Sega said, all right, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And then finally they released Sonic 4. And it, episode one of the of the of the two episodes that were released is this terrible mess of a game that's plagued with poor controls, unoriginal level design, really bizarre glitches where like you could get Sonic to stand absolutely still at a ninety degree angle and not move. <laughs> like <laughs> that is amazing. Um. And, like, the the biggest thing that was noticeable for me when I was playing through it is that when you're playing a classic Sonic game, and I'm I'm talking about the Sonic games for the Sega Genesis and Sega CD, and and even now Sonic Mania, which came out after Sonic 4, the physics is such an important part of the game. When, When Sonic is moving, there's this kind of sense of momentum you get as you're speeding up and speeding up and speeding up, and when you hit that, like, the right, like, incline, you'll launch Sonic, and but it feels controlled you don't feel like you're going too fast at any point you don't feel like you're like outrunning the screen it it works sonic 4 if you tapped the control button while you were jumping sonic would sometimes just stop and then drop vertically down straight (laughs) like he would lose all momentum um if you weren't holding forward he would lose momentum so you could be going down a hill you let go forward sonic stops there's no momentum he's just done and it's also incredibly short. It's Sonic Four Episode One is four uh, levels long. Episode Two, which came out two years later, is also four <laughs> levels long. So these are very short, uh, kind of little chunks of of this incomplete game. It was actually was supposed to get an Episode Three, but Sega canceled their their plan for it. I can't see why. Yeah, Episode Two fixed some of the issues. Um, some of the controls are a little better. Some of the bugs have been fixed um they they've kind of updated the the physics where sonic's a little little less uh you know bad at moving um but overall they're just they're bad bad games uh uh, my overall take is that yeah it's really that bad episode one is excruciatingly bad and episode two is better but it's still bad. Um, episode two did some good things. It added tales, so you can kind of do some new gameplay mechanics that weren't available in one. Um, I think the music is way better in episode two, but they're both just terrible, terrible games. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So that so a Sonic game came out in 2010 and did not have tales. Yeah, is that what you're yeah, saying. So to me? Sonic Four Episode One is only Sonic. And Dr. Robotnik. And it actually plays more like you're playing Sonic 1. You know, the least favorite Sonic game of the Genesis era. (laughs) Um, And then episode 2 was like, we'll put Tails in this one. Because apparently he was just off, like, goofing around for the first half of the game. Well, it's only four episodes. (laughs) And then he shows up and he's like... I mean, four levels. So, I mean, maybe Tails just was ahead of him. So you... I guess so. I think... 
I think it would have been great if they didn't even have Dr. Robotnik in them, and that was the plan. That is, episode three would have introduced Dr. Robotnik, <laughs> yeah. and they just caused an uproar. It was... it. And in episode two has some, they, they made some really weird choices with it. They tried to tie it in to Sonic CD, um, which is a great game, but no Sonic fan that it was playing Sonic games in 2010 would ever want it to be connected to Sonic CD. There was this whole like subplot where like Metal Sonic from Sonic CD was still around and and also like the death egg was back and it was the planet from Sonic. it was it was a mess of a game they they tried way hard to shove a plot into a game that's original plot was that an evil mad scientist had kidnapped a bunch of animals the blue hedgehog was there to stop him <laughs> but they tried to like you know mishmash all of these games together into this like cohesive storyline that just doesn't does not work i say if you want to play a modern Sonic game that harkens back to the original the original games on the Genesis, pick up Sonic Mania. It is way better than Sonic 4, and you'll have a much better time with it no matter what. It is a, Sonic Mania is a fantastic game. Sonic 4 is a mistake. Actually, um, just a quick thing <laughs> is that Sonic Mania actually intentionally, like, references the fact that sonic 4 is bad in the opening cinematic to sonic mania sonic is going up an elevator with with tails and knuckles and like each floor is a representative of one of the games from the classic series so it's sonic one two three and then you see s and k for sonic and knuckles and then it says mania so <laughs> they're just like no sonic 4 never happened <laughs> you know <laughs> we're for good we're gonna forget about that one we're gonna just scratch that one right off um yeah, avoid it. It is if you want to have a bad time, pick it up. But if you if you like Sonic, don't touch it. Uh, so for my is it really that bad? Is uh, going to be Mass Effect Andromeda. So I at the the in our thirty fourth episode, I talk about one of my beloved franchises, XCOM. And I talk about the Bureau, de XCOM Declassified. And my other beloved franchise is the Mass Effect series. So now I'm going to talk about Mass Effect Andromeda. So Mass Effect Andromeda is a game that uh, came out in uh, 2017. I uh, attended uh, a PAX where they actually had the uh, Bioware team there. And they showed us everything that the game was going to do. And it was a really fun uh like just a really cool event uh it was really cool to see the technology they were showing off their uh, frostbite engine which is what they used for anthem and i believe they now on a second iteration of that engine they were super excited it was really cool technology so i pre pre-ordered the game um it, it was um, published by ea and it came out very critical um, when it was uh, in negatively critical um, when it was received. Um, starting off that there was a lot of technical issues. And so, I mean, a rushed out EA game with, you know, pushed out early from the door with uh, I don't think we've seen that before. But uh, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of technical issues when it came with Mass Effect uh, Andromeda. Uh, including a, some that were game-breaking and others that were just, 
quirky and annoying. Um, so, like, there were game-breaking bugs where you would get to certain situations and the game would just not work and it would break. Um, then there was all the death phase. So everyone in in the that you interacted with, including Shepard, or not Shepard, not not Shepard, uh, the Pathfinder, <laughs> including the Pathfinder, um, had this death face, like this face that just looked weird and just horrible. Um, and it, the facial features were so badly messed up. They released a patch, I think within the first week that it came out to fix the facial features. And they were so poor that I restarted my game to play through the game with actual decent facial features in the game. So I've played a lot of Andromeda, especially back in 2017 when it came out. Um, I played about 55 hours of the game. Uh, I don't think that I'm even 40% of the way in. Uh, The game... This is another issue that I have personally with the game. It is very vast. There's a lot of things to do and a lot of things to do that aren't really that important and seem tedious. It's almost like they took an MMO type of grind for different levels and put that into a single player game that is supposed to be story driven. And so then you're like out there collecting things for no reason and trying to assemble them and you're like why all right so i'm a pathfinder finding this new galaxy trying to establish a foothold on humanity and you're telling me i have to go out and find these like six corpses of these guys they have like maybe they have dog tags on them or something and i gotta go pick them up like i'm trying to establish a human colony here and you're telling me i have to fetch quest half the game away it's i also feel that so Dragon Age Inquisition, which was the third Dragon Age game, and I was a big fan of Dragon Age Origins, um, had, I feel, a very similar issue where there was just too much game. They just put in content to just have content and a lot of fluff and just kind of just pushed it through so that you're playing this game and it just goes on for hours, which I guess if you're a person who really enjoys playing a really expansive world that is kind of it's like a very large lake that's six inches deep if you like walking through those lakes then 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 you may enjoy these games i don't i prefer to have heavy story but i prefer to have heavy story within a certain time frame (laughs) i don't have no no now I'm gonna sound like the worst person ever, but I have never played a Mass Effect, a Mass Effect so game the ever. First three Mass Effects, Mass Effect One, Two, and Three, are probably some of the best role playing games ever created, and I recommend you play them. Actually, wait because in March of next year they're going to be remastered. So just play the remastered trilogy when it comes out. Hundred percent recommend them. It's like. If you like role playing in sci-fi, which you do, because you admitted it on this podcast that you do, <laughs> <laughs> it's on record. Bleep it out, please. Um, Bleep it out. <laughs> if you like those two things, you will adore Mass Effect, the the original three. Don't play Andromeda. Just it's I, well, I play the first three, then decide on your own if you want to play Andromeda. Andromeda is not a bad game. So is it really that bad? No, it's not really that bad of a game. Is it so? Is it a good game? Uh, it's a it's a it's a mediocre game. It's a okay game. 
I if you're looking for a type of mindless grind type game um, that you would play like an MMO for or like I would recommend it. It's a fun game, especially if you don't want to deal with other people and you just want to try and do like a mindless grindy game that you can have TV on the background or something. You just want something there. It's fine. It's good for that. It's actually probably better than that. But is it a good Mass Effect game? No, it's not. It's not a good Mass Effect game at all. It <laughs> it, it doesn't carry the the bar for the Mass Effect name was just so high for Andromeda and because of some of the issues where Andromeda had and necessarily so because BioWare was also trying to get Anthem out which is their other game they kind of put Andromeda on the back burner of development and it shows but do you, but do you think there could have been cuz and so people don't really freak out i know of Mass Effect right i know that a lot of people like it do you think that there was any way right to right because one one through three is a story right it 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 is it's a complete arc do you think there was really any way for them to have made yes. a fourth mass effect game that people are like oh we yeah this is just yeah. as good or better like or did they mess themselves they, over i think they there was a way and i think that way would have been with casey hudson at the helm and he departed bioware prior to mm. andromeda and came back to bioware after andromeda oh. so so he casey hudson's actually back at bioware he's now the general manager of them um and he came back in 2017 which is the year that andromeda released and he left prior <laughs> to he left shortly after mass effect 3 came out which he was the he was essentially the driving force behind Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. Uh, Casey Hudson was also a important player in Star Wars The Old Republic, which was also a fine game. Uh, Jade Empire, which was another f- a great game, and Baldur's Gate 2, Shadows of Alm for the PC. So he was with Bioware. He's a Bioware mm-hmm. vet. And I think if that if he was more involved with Andromeda, I don't... Can one person fix a game? Maybe not. But I think that... I think the world of Mass Effect is, I think there's enough world out there to tell another story that's just as good as Shepard's, which, but it's Mm. not the Pathfinder story. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Andromeda. (laughs) Um, And I mean, I know there's controversy with Mass Effect 3's ending and all of that. And as somebody who's played through every Mass Effect series, every Mass Effect game I've played through at least three times, I could... I could tell you that there I I understand the controversy effect of the ending of the third game but I also understand that the story that gets you there is probably one of the best written stories in modern gaming as it were. Thank you for the no spoilers. No spoilers. I I we try to restrict spoilers. The the, the ending is controversial, but it's fine. It's I would it's it was all a dream. No, no, it's not like that. No, they actually though they did release a patch that changed the ending <laughs> and, because and that you you end up waking up in the beginning of Skyrim. Well, it 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 doesn't end the way that I wanted it to do end, which was um, spoiler alert. It does not end with Shepard wielding a shotgun 
charging all over the reapers shooting the reapers jumping from reaper to reaper like um duke oh. style like that's how it should have ended <laughs> yeah it, 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 it doesn't just end with like the final frame from doom 2016 where it's doom guy like in a standstill with all the demons and getting blasted apart yes. yeah that's how it should have ended but anyway speaking of ending i think that will lead us to the end of this podcast before we get into our uh, spiel about how much people can reach out to us on social media, I'd like to uh, thank Damien for coming onto our show. Uh, it was an honor and a privilege to uh, have you with us. And no, I really, ap- I really appreciated being invited and being able to participate in this uh, year one of a ten-year journey for Classic Gaming Brothers. It's, it's, it's an honor. Zach, do you want to let everybody know how people can listen to us, find us, no, listen to us, contact us, and support us? Yeah, let's do the spiel. So let's say you want to, what is it, listen to us, contact us, and support us? Let's say you want to listen to us. Um, We are available on all major podcasting applications that are out there. Uh, I'm talking about iTunes. I'm talking about Spotify. I'm talking about Castbox. We're on all of them. That's great. Let's say there's a podcasting application that we are not on. Maybe it's a podcasting application that hasn't even been made yet. (laughs) In that case, let us know. And we'll try to get on there as best as we can. You can also find all of our recorded episodes on YouTube. And you can also... (laughs) Well, we can find most of our recorded episodes on YouTube. (laughs) They are uploaded there. Along with our twitch streams uh we we do a twitch every now and then it is irregular um just like seth and myself we are irregular people so we have an irregular schedule uh and we uh and we just need more fiber to get some more regular we we almost made this entire podcast without making one poop joke with damien on (laughs) i literally watched seth's face just turn to a weep as it became a poop joke in media res. In any case, um, yes, we do have a Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash Classic Gaming Brothers. If you go to VS Classic Gaming Brothers on Twitch, that's my view. Occasionally, I'll stream when my internet's good. Uh, let's say you want oh, to... Wait. You, we may all be wait. soon to be able to be listened to on Pandora. That's exciting. If you want to contact us, I highly recommend that you open up your email client and send an email to classic gaming brothers at gmail.com or classic gaming brothers at classic gaming brothers.com or zach at classic gaming brothers.com or seth at classic gaming brothers.com spoiler alert they all go into the exact same inbox and that's an inbox that seth reads and i occasionally look at (laughs) full honesty there so yeah reach out to us that way you can also visit our website classicgamingbrothers.com go to the contact page uh fill out a contact form goes to our inbox uh in our gmail so that's that's where it ends up uh and that's another way to contact us you can also reach us out reach out to us through any of our social media channels uh we have facebook we have instagram we have twitter facebook is classic gaming brothers instagram is classic gaming brothers twitter cg brothers pod and if you want to support us Tell three friends. That's always important. Uh, make sure to only tell three friends, no one else. And also, you could share our content. We'd love that. You know, like, subscribe, ring bells, do anything that you can do to uh, bring attention to our podcast. Uh, you can also purchase our merchandise. You don't have to. Uh, but if you want to wear our shirt or 
a drink out of our face, then that uh, those options are available to you. <laughs> um, I, I I see Damien laughing there, and I, I do want to say, I, I do want to get ceramic glass mugs of no. Seth in my face. <laughs> my wife will be very upset when I buy those. Because uh, I will be buying those. <laughs> I well, I told Zach, being the person in charge of sourcing our products, that we are not going to get faces of mugs made of our faces. Oh. He says that now, but it's coming. It's coming. I mean, little I tiki mugs. Uh, that would be cool. We just have a we have a regular mug with our logo. We do on have it. coffee mug. We do have coffee mug. Yeah, it's eleven ounces. I want one that's like molded. I want it to look like, no. I want it to be our face. Yeah, so that's how you can do all the things <laughs> that you need to do in order to uh, in order to better your experience and our experience with this podcast. Um, again, don't feel obligated to, to buy any of our stuff. It's there if you want it. So, uh, and we, we do know people who wanted it, so that's why it's there. Um, yeah, uh, besides that, uh, man, I can't think of anything else. I don't think there's anything else that I have to say. Seth. What about you? Uh, don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And I've been Damien. Yeah! <laughs> and we've been the classic gaming brothers. That's right. That's right. That's great. <laughs> Yay. Yay! And now, now, if only, Zach, can you do the mixed up Mother Goose theme song? <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. I also wanted to put in the, the Sierra had this little No, no, uh, with your mouth. Like blue. <laughs> oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> This is like <laughs> bum, 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 bum. <laughs>